Hello, I'm Sean Gwezczek. Welcome to BFBS SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. When Russia invaded Ukraine, we thought it would probably be over in days. That was six months ago. So how and when will it end? We in the West obviously need to ensure the Russians do not win. Um, equally, I find it quite difficult to work out in my own mind how the Ukrainians can win. We'll get the assessments of experienced military minds, the Armed Forces Minister and our own Professor Michael Clark. Also this week, life in limbo, how thousands of Afghans who worked with British forces are still living in hotels a year after being brought to Britain. The package is, is relatively good but they can't start their new lives until they've got somewhere to live in the long term. And a former Royal Marine shares his story of getting not only himself, but dozens of others safely out of Kabul as the Taliban took over. We drove about five, six hundred metres to the end of the road where there's just a massive gunfight. I thought, that, there's no way I can drive the diplomats through. We've got PKMs, there's guys with RPGs. This week, Ukraine has marked 31 years of independence from the Soviet Union and six months of war since Russia invaded. Since then, on BFBS SITREP, we've followed the strategic moves and about turns, analysed the fights in places like Mariupol and Bucha, and spoken to those who have witnessed it. But six months on, it's time to take a step back and take another look at the really big questions of this war, starting with the biggest, who is winning? Well, I think the concept of winning and losing is not the right concept to apply to this. As Clausewitz said, war is a continuation of politics by other means. This will go back to negotiation at some point. I don't know how you call a win when Russia has, in part, just rubbleized large swaths of this nation. We have a chance to bring this to a successful conclusion sooner if we put in more capability for the Ukrainians that they need Ukraine wins, uh, or at least back to the 23 February line by the end of this year. The assessments there of the former head of the British Army, General Lord Dannett, former NATO Supreme Commander, General Philip Breedlove, and finally the former commander of the US Army in Europe, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. Guiding us through this since the very beginning has been Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark. Michael, is anyone winning or losing at this point? Well, in one sense, the fact that the Ukrainians are still there means that they are winning in the sense that they have not been invaded successfully, the government was not swept away and they are still in the war. Neither side on the battlefield is obviously winning, neither side is losing, but they're both now in a different situation. It isn't, it isn't a stalemate. The fact is the Russians are, look as if they're digging in for the winter because they will almost certainly launch a second big offensive, probably the other side of the winter early next year. And the Ukrainians are trying to score a big victory down in the southwest around Kershaw before the winter. So the situation is quite dynamic, even though there's not a lot of movement on the ground. And both sides have got something slightly different to play for. The Ukrainians want to score something quickly. The Russians realise now this will be a long struggle and they're thinking in the longer term. Thanks, Michael. Well, let's now hear from the UK's Armed Forces Minister, James Heapy. He believes Western support, including British training for thousands of soldiers, has put Ukraine ahead in this war. Whereas Russia is increasingly constrained by the international sanctions regime and the fact that it is a global pariah, Ukraine is increasingly sustained 
by the fact that Western industry is increasingly producing for the Ukrainian war efforts. Western countries are increasingly involved in the training of Ukrainians for their army and their navy. So I think that whilst at the moment the movements backwards and forwards on the front line are pretty minimal, actually in terms of the wider calculus of the conflict, the fact that Ukraine has that strategic depth through its allies in the West will ultimately be what sees it prevail. Well, let's talk about that, because obviously when Russia launched this action six months ago, no one would have predicted that it would have lasted for six months. So can either side win militarily? Yes, and, and, and I would agree. I think when you looked at that overwhelming force, seemingly overwhelming force, all of the sort of raw military math said, this ain't going to last that long. But two things happened that history will judge to have been pivotal. Firstly, President Zelensky emboldened the Ukrainian nation and the Ukrainian armed forces have shown a commitment and a courage that is way beyond what anybody thought might be possible. And then secondly, and every bit as importantly, the Russian armed forces have been serially undermined by the interference and the hubris of Vladimir Putin, who again and again and again interfered in the military planning and even the execution of the military operation, forcing his armed forces to give away their advantage. And so we find ourselves in a place six months in where the war is brutal. The Ukrainians say they've lost about 9,000 troops. Our analysis is that Russia has had about 80,000 killed, wounded, captured uh, or deserted. That's an incredible human cost. But we find ourselves at a place where actually the conflict is very finely balanced and therefore there's no reason why Ukraine can't ultimately prevail. So how and when will it end? Well, not quickly is the honest answer. I think that that strategic depth that I've described needs to be brought to bear and that happens over time. The ability to generate more troops, more equipment will be the thing that they have that Russia can't match. And I don't think that we'll see anything conclusive until well into next year. But increasingly, we're seeing Ukraine has the confidence to strike Russia in its depth and to have the confidence to look at where and how it could counter-strike. Will it have to come down to negotiation eventually, though? Well, uh, inevitably, you're not going to reach to a point where one side is completely defeated militarily, although it may be that one side or the other decides that the price is no longer worth paying. I don't think for a second that that will ever be the Ukrainians' choice because they have lost sovereign territory. And we, as the world beyond, must be clear that it is for them to define the outcome that they seek. Because if we were to seek to compromise, we would be to reward Putin's aggression with territorial gain. The point is, therefore, you reach an end where maybe there is negotiation, but it's negotiation within which Zelensky feels that his aims are achieved. And we definitely should not, around the international community, be seeking to pull the rug from under Zelensky and put him into a position where he's negotiating with anything other than strength. The Armed Forces Minister, James Heapy. Professor Michael Clark, what's going to decide the final outcome of this war, military might or politics and diplomacy? 
Well, ultimately, as everyone says, and James Heap is absolutely right, um, there, there will be, I don't think the, the war will end, but there'll be a ceasefire sometime, perhaps next year or the year after. And that ceasefire will be driven by one side feeling that it has got some gains that it can cash in, and the other side feeling that if it doesn't have a ceasefire soon, it will lose even more. And that could happen to either side, but the Russians are more likely to be in that position than the Ukrainians if the Ukrainians can get through the winter into next year. But ultimately, of course, military might is what determines the conditions under which that ceasefire is undertaken. And it's not just military might, Sean. It's also this is the era again of industrial warfare. So the side that will prevail is the side that can mobilize its industry most efficiently to fight this war. Now, the Russians will try to mobilize, but they've got real problems in that. The Ukrainians need us to mobilize. The Ukrainian military is only sustainable if we mobilize industrially to help them fight their war. So that's a pretty big calculation. And you mentioned the winter there, not too far down the road. How much impact could a change of weather have? Oh, it does have a big impact. I mean, Ukraine has uh, hot summers and cold winters, in which in both cases in the summer and the winter, the ground is hard, which is good for armoured vehicles, generally speaking. It's wet in the, in the midsummer and autumn. That's the wet season that they're going through now. But in general, cold winters, I mean, difficult winters, are harder for the attacker than the defender. I mean, they're miserable for everybody, but if you're sitting in defence, it's a bit easier in a hard winter than it is to attack. And that's why the Ukrainians want to make something out of their offensive incursion before the weather turns cold. And if the Russians are digging in, it'll be easier for the Russians to hold their positions between now and February, March, uh, if it's a tough winter. OK, well, let's put a what if in. What if Russia regained momentum took the capital, Kyiv, and won, what would follow that? A great deal would follow that, because if this aggression were rewarded, remember, this is the second war. The first war was in 2014, when Russia twice invaded, in effect, invaded Ukraine. So this is the second war. They've taken a, a third chunk out of Ukrainian territory, about 20% of the territory now they uh, control. And if they were able to absorb the whole of the territory, Ukraine, remember, is, apart from Russia itself, is the biggest country in Europe. I mean, this would take us right back to the 1930s. And we would then say, well, the autocracy the dictatorships are on the march and we would feel the effect of that from Russia, from China, from some of the autocracies in Europe like Hungary who would certainly go along with this and I think our security in Western Europe would be severely, severely undermined and it wouldn't just be security, it would be economic prosperity as well. Given that we're six months in now, when do you think this will be over? Well, the struggle uh, Russia versus Ukraine is a generational struggle, so it'll go deep into this century, next 30, 40, 50 years probably, which means it'll be an on-off war, a uh, series of wars, ceasefires, ceasefires break down, more wars. This is the second war. I think it might come to an end or come to a ceasefire point, perhaps in a year to 18 months, and that ceasefire may last four or five years, and that will break down, and then we'll be into war number three, sometime perhaps in the late 20s. This is a generational struggle and this is a completely different security environment for Europe for the rest of the most of this century. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrep.
This time last year, the UK's military-led evacuation from Afghanistan was in its final phase. Operation Pitting rescued 5,000 British nationals from Taliban-controlled Kabul. We'll hear from one of them shortly. But 8,000 of those airlifted out were vulnerable Afghans, many of them former interpreters for British forces and their families. They were brought to the UK for new lives. But 12 months on, most are still waiting for those new lives to begin properly. We have been evacuated from Afghanistan on the 27th of August 2021. And since then, we are living uh, in, in a bridging hotel. It is very uncertain for me and for my wife because we don't really know where we're going to end up. And we can't really plan for our life. Gulsum is working and I'm working as well. But whenever we talked with our company, they're asking our permanent address because they have uh, security clearance. And we say we're living in a hotel. It's provided by the home office. We cannot plan whether we're going to study, whether we're going to work. We came here with the hope of, you know, to rebuild our life. And still we are waiting Najib, a former Afghan intelligence officer, is one of nine and a half thousand Afghan refugees still living in hotels. The cost, a million pounds a day, but the price of those living in the hotels is being left in limbo. British veterans of Afghanistan have continued to help. I've been talking to Ed Aitkin, co-founder of the Sulha Alliance charity, and retired Major Andrew Fox, who's still coordinating donations for Afghans brought to safety in Britain. Yeah, it's not so much donations they need, it's it's housing from the Home Office. You know, they're living in limbo in these hotels and the package is, is relatively good in terms of the support they get, but they can't start their new lives until they've got somewhere to live uh, for the long term rather than a short term hotel. They have WhatsApp groups full of former Afghan interpreters. For those who are stuck in the hotels, it's enormously frustrating. They are in this situation where they're desperate to rebuild their lives, they're desperate to come off benefits and start work and get their kids settled and into a school, which is obviously very difficult to do when you're living in in hotel accommodation. You must be able to see how that is impacting on them the longer this goes on. It is just frustrating, I think is the best way to describe it. I think it's important to say how grateful they are that that they're out of Afghanistan and that the British government has done something to rescue them. Knowing that you're going to be in a hotel for a year, possibly more, anyone would find that hard. Never mind someone who's just had to flee their country with nothing more than the clothes they had on their backs. Yeah, I think, you know, these guys are already psychologically traumatised you know, resettlement is a very difficult process. We see, we see, and we know that from the experience that our own veterans go through when moving from the forces into the civilian world. And of course, on the one hand, as you just referred to, they're, they're much safer here, but on the other, they're not able to start again. How do you feel about the fact that we've not yet properly resettled nine and a half thousand Afghans? I'm very sort of pragmatic about this. Uh, I know that we cannot. Uh, conjure accommodation out of nowhere. However, I, I would certainly suggest that the Afghans are people to whom we owe more than most. My feeling is that these people really should be at, at the very top uh, of um, the list. I do have a degree of sympathy for the government on this one because there is a social housing shortage in the UK and there's nothing we can do about that in, in the immediate term. 
in addition, there is a bit of an obsession with getting to London. So I do know of families who've turned down flats because they're, they're not in the area they want to. But there does need to be a solution to this at some point, And I think maybe some creative thinking is needed. You know, people's generosity has been absolutely humbling. And, you know, people really want to help these Afghans. And in return, they really want to repay it by, by getting out there and working and being, you know, part of British society. Andrew Fox and Ed Aitken there. Well, we asked the Home Office to speak to a minister, but no one was available. A few weeks ago, the Armed Forces Minister James Heapy told MPs it was appalling that Afghan refugees are stuck in hotels and that he was desperate for councils to step up and help. But the local government association, which represents councils in England, says the government needs to fully engage with those councils. So who is actually in charge of getting homes for Afghans waiting to properly start new lives? A question I put to the Chief Executive of Staffordshire County Council, retired Major General John Henderson. Well, ultimately, it's a good question, Shai. Everyone's responsible. The whole system is responsible. But ultimately, it comes down to councils to find those accommodation. But, but actually, the big issue is that many of these Afghans don't want to settle in rural areas like Staffordshire. We tended to employ Kabulis, you know, so, and at the same time, a lot of the, pe- the government people who've been evacuated, they're from Kabul. And we've had 40-odd years of, of migration from, from uh, Afghanistan, and they, those people have tended to migrate towards London particularly. We had a bridging hotel, uh, slightly under 200 people in it. But all of those, that, that closed at the end of June, but all of that 200, slightly over 50, are actually uh, settled in Staffordshire. And the rest of, of what gone gone to London and tried to yeah. to, to get a home uh, now. Are they in hotels down in London? I, I don't know. I suspect they've taken accommodation. We were quite successful. We worked really closely with the, the Home Office in terms of, you know, because the, the system was they were offered one house and if they refused that house, they got offered a second house. And if they, offered, if they refused that house, they were then technically homeless and that then, you know, got, they were responsible for their own accommodation. Now, we managed to avoid that um, by working closely with them. Um, Actually, where, where the hotel was, was in uh, the north of the county, and uh, over half of our small, relatively small number, slightly over 50, have settled in North Staffordshire, around Newcastle under Lyme. And the logic being, they, they'd got kids into school, they'd found jobs, the housing worked. So, so it was a, it's a sort of, a say, around the, uh, around the peace effort. I mean, that, that's really positive to hear that you have actually managed to, to, to rehome a number of them and, and close your hotel. Because when you look at the numbers, nine and a half thousand still in, in hotels, yeah. uh, it, it sounds as though that that's actually quite a, wa- a rare thing to achieve. Now, I mean, how concerned are you that, that some Afghans who served alongside British troops are still in limbo a year on? I think I'm very concerned, and I and I think that um, and the minister's right to be uh, concerned. You know, we got an, quite a large number out, but we have to accept that. You know, over the next well, we're, we're seeing it now. Many of the young pe- the young men, particularly who are presenting at uh, you know with the, the refugee flows into the south of the country, the country through the boats, are Afghan, and and equally a lot of the people who've come across since you know they're not settled yet. Th- this is going to be something that's going to run for months, if not years. And, and we, we, we just can't afford to take our eye off the ball. The RAF, meanwhile, is still flying two planes full of Afghan refugees into the UK each month. Mm-hmm. This needs a long-term fix, doesn't it? What is that? Well, I think it is. It's a, it's a long-term fix. I think that the, you know, the, the minister wrote to, all, he wrote to me and all the other chief executives of um, uh, councils a couple of weeks ago, really good, and they've got a plan. Um, I think we all need to stick at it. Um, and it's about explaining to these people that, you know, what... Wh- you know, yes, we're yes, we're going to help you, 
but this is the limit of what we can help you with. And, you know, and this, it's one of those sort of adult conversations we need to have with these people to understand, you know, you're going to have a life in, 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 in uh, UK. It, it, we're going to help you as much as we can, but we can't give you necessarily absolutely everything that you would want. We'll give you everything you need, not what you want. Some people will, will hear the explanations that you've just given and feel that the blame or the onus for the backlog is being put on the, the Afghan refugees themselves. Is that what you're saying? No, not at all. No, I, I think it's a, it, it, you know, we all talk about managing expectations and that, that's life. And I think we do, what we do is we say to people is, this is what we can give to you now. This is where we are. And as I say, you know, it's, it's one of those things. We, we work with these people. It's worked very successfully for us. As a, as a place, you know, our, our, our hotel closed two months ago. Um, and that, that sort of honest conversations with people to say, this is what we can do. And people said, yeah, that's all right. We, I understand that. And this is therefore they've made choices and they've moved on. The chief executive of Staffordshire County Council, Major General John Henderson. Well, as I mentioned, 5,000 of those airlifted out of Kabul a year ago on op pitting were British nationals. They included many security contractors like former Royal Marine H. Collins, having served in Afghanistan when the Taliban were ousted at the start of the century. H. found himself surrounded by Taliban when they returned as he led a diplomatic protection team for the Japanese embassy, a story he shares in his new memoir, Last Team Out of Kabul. I headed down to my own room and made another coffee. What more could go wrong? We were surrounded by the Taliban. Our vehicles were blocked in. The airport was total chaos with people falling off planes. And the commander we were negotiating with was responsible for killing a team member's best friend. On top of that, three of his henchmen had come into our compound wearing suicide vests. I sat on my bed trying to absorb it all. How much more of a cluster could we be in? Well, that extract sums up the huge challenges H and his team faced getting themselves, but first diplomats out of a country collapsing around them. We had a, a patch of gunship from the Americans as Overwatch. We had a Predator drone. My guys geared up. We got the diplomats in. We drove about five, six hundred metres to the end of the road where there's just a massive gunfight between government forces and the Taliban. I get called forward by sort of two IC slash medic immediately. I knew it was bad. I thought, there's no way I can drive the diplomats through, through you know, a gunfight. We've got PKMs, there's guys with RPGs. So I made a really difficult call on the ground to abort. We jade turned out there. And then I can see the deputy Ambo sat in the back of the car and he's very wide eyed and sat back. And the senior diplomat, who's a female, is sat next to him and they look at me and I, and I say, look, I'm terribly sorry, but uh, it's decidedly unhealthy if we go this way. So I'm going to take you back. We're going to reassess. We're going to reevaluate. And yeah, what does happen next then? So we opted for the night move. It's a lot harder for them to see me at night. We jump back in and we head straight down to Taipan Gate. That gate was run by the Americans. So we radio ahead. We're coming in hot. Embassy of Japan, um, you know, please be ready to receive. And take us through those those next few moments, because you have to wait for a little while, don't you? They don't immediately open that gate, do they? No, we have a bit of back and forth, and, and I managed to, to say, look, you know, they're your asset, their assets above me. 
I sort of blagged it a little bit as well. I was like, they're running out of fuel. So I made it their drama. It says, you know, if you don't sort this out, they're going to run out of fuel. These diplomats aren't going to get out. The embassy of Japan is going to remain in Afghanistan. You, know, you need to get me, get, yeah, yeah, man, yeah, no worries. And I was like, oh, I need to lean on these Americans so bad. Come on, come on, you know, we need these gates open. And eventually, yeah, they do open and we're, uh, we're into the airfield and hooking up with the RAF. And I remember that point in the book where you're just so relieved uh, to, to see the RAF. Yeah, it's not the first time the RAF has saved my skin in Afghanistan either. In 2002, we were running low on food and water uh, on Ops Snipe with 4-5 Commando, and they dropped in then as well. So it was kind of 20 years later, I've got the RAF there receiving me. I think, wow, you know, we're, uh, here we are again, two decades later. And the Taliban follow you back, don't they? Tell us about, you know, those, those next few few days, because, it, it, again, it's not straightforward. No. So we, we backed out the airport. It's early hours. As I moved out into the city, I started to come across the checkpoints. I can immediately tell these sort of, you spider senses up and you think, this is bad. This is bad to so my guys. My lead element is, is really what you want to do. I says, just drive, drive, drive. The last checkpoint before we get back to the HQ, they start firing the warning shots at us. And on the radio, one of my guys is, is, is H, you know, they're firing at us. I said, listen, I'm not going to say that word on the radio right now because everybody listening is then going to panic. I said, I know what's happening. You know what's happening. Just keep driving. And if it gets bad, then I'll get on the net and I'll say the word contact. As, but right now, just drive. We get back to the compound. We go in, we de-kit, and then over the Tannoy. Taliban are inbound, about 500 metres out. The gear off, I remember thinking, this is it, you know, I'm going to get surrounded now. I walk out of the room and the ambassador's bodyguard meets me. We were at the bottom of the football and the team was above us. Got my M4. By the time I get to the top of the stairs, I'm sort of first to punch out the door. So I've gone from being at the bottom of the stairs thinking, you know, how are we going to get out? It's the top of the stairs, like, right, let's fight. You know, let's fight for everything we're worth. So they they sit on the main gate and um, they're waiting. You don't have any backup and you know that, but then all of a sudden the Taliban want to come in and they want to talk to you. How did you feel about letting them in? Surreal, absolutely surreal. Uh, I wasn't happy about it. We had to negotiate our way out. So for sort of six days, we do this whole go, no go. And then there's an eventual move where they said, right, you can't take any of your weapons. You can't take any of your cars. You're completely with us at our mercy. Literally walked out with probably a few items of clothing and a pair of trainers. And, and you think, right, okay, not that any of that matters. And then, you're out into the forecourt and we, that, at that moment, it's probably the most vulnerable I've ever felt. And I thought, wow, if this goes sideways now, you know. Former Royal Marine H. Collins, and there is so much more to his story, including how he tricked the Taliban to thinking he could call in air support and the moment he had to tell a senior diplomat that printers were not part of the rescue plan. You can hear it all in an extra edition of the BFBS SITREP podcast, which is now online.
Let's get some final thoughts from Professor Michael Clark. It's a year since the Taliban took control of Afghanistan and six months since Russia tried to seize control of Ukraine. It reminds us that our expectations of these world-changing events are not always realised, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, I mean, the one thing we can guarantee is that the world will always surprise us every five years or so. And I think, you know, there's a difference between tactical surprise and strategic surprise. We're always surprised tactically because that's human affairs. You can't predict what will happen. But we shouldn't be surprised strategically because we ought to be able to see what the trends are, the political trends, the economic trends and so on. So I think there is that difference. I mean, Afghanistan was tactically surprising because of the way that the Taliban just moved in and the Afghan government collapsed and uh, Ashraf Ghani just fled after one day. That was surprising. But the strategy shouldn't have surprised us. We could see that this was a slow motion road accident happening in front of our eyes. I'm going to ask for a prediction. How will the world change in the next 12 months? What will we be talking about next August? Well... Tactical and strategic again. Strategically, what is happening is that the world economy is going into a recession. The sort of post-COVID world is still unravelling itself. So we still haven't seen the full effects of the COVID lockdown that lasted for two years and is still very active, of course, in many parts of China. So we're still seeing that. There's a food crisis. There's an energy crisis. All of those things are the strategic changes, the strategic drivers that's strategic. Well, it's not surprising. But what will happen, presumably, is that somewhere there'll be a series of tactical changes whereby uh, instability, political instability will arise because of those strategic things. So I'm sure that over the next, next 12 months, we'll be talking about the economic recession of the world. And what you and I might be talking about next August uh, will be the particular insurgencies, the particular um, instabilities, the coups, the collapse of governments that have been created by that. You know, there's a famous phrase that's off quoted at the moment. Mike Tyson, the boxer, he said, you know, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the mouth. That's true. Absolutely. Well, Professor Michael Clark, thank you so much, as always, for your expert analysis and my thanks to all of our guests this week. That's all for now. We're back, of course, with another BFBS SITREP next Thursday. Don't forget, before then, you can find an extra edition of this programme with the full remarkable story of H. Collins' escape from Afghanistan at bfbs.com forward slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Sean Greshchek and the rest of the team, thanks for listening and goodbye.